first thought was, why don't you kill yourself? Second thought was, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy, which is where I do truly believe I belong. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can always kill myself. That's how I got into comedy. Welcome to Wise Words and Whiskey. I'm your host, Wiley McGraw. Join me with other great guests as we sip good whiskey and talk about all things high performance. So kick back, pour yourself a nice dram, and settle in for some low-key conversations on high-performance living. Let's jump in. Well, Frank, brother, I'm, I'm really, really stoked that you're here right now joining me on, on the show today. And I want to introduce everybody that's hanging out with us to Mr. Frank King. Mr. Frank King is known as the mental health comedian. Uh, he was a producer with Jay Leno and The Tonight Show for 20 years, um, if I make sure that I got that correct. And you've been a uh, speaker and a corporate comedian for over 30 now. Uh, but that's not why I, I brought you on the show. And we can talk about where they can find you at the end of the conversation. But I brought you here today, brother, to have a conversation around suicide to bodybuilder slash comedian and what it actually, what it took to get there. That's a big deal. And I, I, and you're the one that I know of that is making it not so taboo or, or, you know, um, you know, risque to talk about suicide, et cetera. But there's so much that you can take from those life experiences that you had that drove you towards this more high performance lifestyle that you now live, that you have lived, that you laugh at and that you share with others on stages through your comedy, et cetera. Uh, Frank, folks that you're hanging out with us right now has also a seven time TEDx speaker. I think you're on a TED stage as well, which is fantastic. So if you ever want to work with someone who can get you prepared for your own, this is the guy right here to, to see. So before we jump into that topic, Frank, I want to pop open this unbelievable bottle of Balvini Caribbean cask. I think it's going to be a, a nice drink. We can share it with the audience right now. We've uh, got our brand new bottles ready to crack and christen. So let's go ahead. And if you're joining us right now, I want to make sure you sit back, relax, pour yourself a nice dram of whiskey or whatever your poison might be and prepare to have a nice conversation with Frank and I. Now, you got to understand, Wally, I've been on a wagon for 20 years. Uh, I'm just doing this for you. Wow. Well, you can at least taste it. You don't have no, to drink no, I'm, it. I'm kidding. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm kidding <laughs> after a fashion. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I think the last time I had a drink was uh, when Hillary Clinton was running for president. I just do that to date. Uh, wow. Okay. I was on a, I was on a ship. With another comic, we're in the bar, and he goes, I'm buying. I said, oh, <laughs> you're buying? Well, I'll have a little single malt scotch if you're buying. And <laughs> he and I did a shot, and that's been a couple of decades. It's been at least a decade ago. So, All right. Uh, well, here you know what? As we say, uh, Gaelic slancha to health. And I appreciate you being here. Let's enjoy a little sip, and we'll jump right in. Oh, man. What are you thinking? All right. Oh, I had forgotten how good that was. Um, you know, well, you know what? While um, there was a kid at the at the Centurion Lounge in Denver, it's the American Express Lounge. I, I got I got the Centurion card, the Platinum card. After I after I, you know ten years for bankruptcy, a Chapter Seven to fall off, and as soon as it fell off, I knew getting travel cards would make my life oh so much easier. And I was offered a platinum card from, from American Express, and I thought they've lost their minds, but okay. Right, right, right. And turns out you can use the Centurion lounges at the various airports. Well, 
I'm in the, and it's a whole different experience traveling if you can use a lounge anywhere. Correct. United or whatever. Uh, anyway, I'm standing there at the bar getting ready to get a Diet Coke. And the kid in front of me, a young man, goes, can I get a strawberry mimosa? <laughs> I thought, man, you've got to be single because there's no way you can order that in front of a woman and go home with her. Uh, you know, order a single malt scotch. And- there you go. Well, what well, do you think and- about this? Uh, what do you think about this Balvini uh, Caribbean mm. cask 14? Oh, man. Mm, it is Delicious. uh it is uh, smooth and it's smoky. Um, it's just, I mean, it's for, it's aged 14 years. It's, uh, yeah. why yeah. it's finished in, it's finished in the uh, Caribbean rum casks. So it imparts more of those enhanced vanilla notes and those fruits that the rum, the rum typically has, but a little of that smoke on the, on the palate as well is really nice. Yeah. It's, um, and, it, it, and, uh, again, with a strawberry mimosa, obviously not a big drinker. You know, it's not the kind of thing you drink if you really enjoy um, something like this. If you're drinking a fruity, whatever, <laughs> orange well, juice. Yeah. You know. Well, that's the thing. And the beautiful thing about these whiskeys, Frank, and why I love sharing them with people like you, especially for, you know, for the audience to hang out with us and enjoy their own, is to learn about appreciating the finer spirits. You know, the art of creating something so good is high performance in itself. And it takes so much focus and commitment and, and it's excellence that we get to sit back together and toast and then sip on it and enjoy the different experiences that come with different types. So this one was perfect for our, our talk today. And you know what else, Wally? What's that, Frank? Like success in anything. It took four, they waited 14 years. Right. <laughs> That's, I'm guessing right. the alcohol that went into the strawberry mimosa wasn't 14 years old. Not even close. It wasn't even six months, I don't think. But, yeah, uh, exactly. So anything, I mean, it's, what was it um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, Outlier, I think. Yes. And he talks about people doing something and doing it well and it, doing, you know, you do it 10,000 times and you're, you're good at it. And so uh, that's it's kind of, a commi- it's truly a commitment to excellence against yep. all odds, which is why I'm, I'm happy you're here because we're going to sip our whiskey. Everyone wants to kick back, listen to what we have to say. We want to un- unpack your experience going from, the verge of suicide to bodybuilding comedian and, and yeah. speaker, et cetera, where you're able to take all those experiences and laugh at them and actually do something with them. Because going from that space that you and I've talked about, you talk about on stages, et cetera, to competing and bodybuilding takes an unbelievable shift in mindset, commitment to excellence and attitude adjustment and an appreciation for even the most detrimental of experiences like suicide in those moments to turn around and do something with it for the betterment of others as well. So I want nothing more than to unpack that right now with you. So let's dive into that brother, because I want to hear where, where you started with that and what really unleashed in you to, to choose and pursue where you're at right now. Well, and like a lot of people who have a passion for what they do, uh, you, you hear them say, you know, I knew since the fourth grade, well, Wiley, I told my first joke in the fourth grade. Yep. The students laughed. The teacher was so hysterical. She had to excuse herself and go to the teacher's lounge. And years later, I asked her about that. I bumped into her at the grocery store, Mrs. Dark. And she goes, Frank, you know why I went to the teacher's lounge? I said, I have no idea. She goes, I was, I was laughing so hard. I was afraid if I laughed any harder in your face, it would break your heart. So I had to excuse my. She said, that was the funniest thing a child said before or since. It was amazing. And I said, well, you would be happy to know, Ms. Dark, that's how I make my living now. Uh, and then 12th grade, 
there was a talent show. And I, I, I was in acting classes for three years, Wally. And I got no speaking parts ever. And so when the talent show rolled around last semester, senior year, I thought to myself, you know what? If I follow my fourth grade dream and become a stand-up comedian, I can write, direct, produce, and star in my own little show every night. So I took responsibility. I thought, you know, uh-huh. why, why do I need a, you know, a play, a playwright, a, what a, a cast? I, I can. So I got up on stage. Nobody ever done stand up at the talent show, and and I won. Now, granted, I was competing against the accordion player and the international folk dancer. <laughs> That's so, you know, it wasn't that difficult. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I go home, and uh, I tell my mama, I'm going to LA and be a comedian. Well, my mother. Uh, bless her heart, uh, the entire family, big into education, uh, especially for the women. All, all the women, back, my great-grandmother had gone to college. I mean, that was unusual for the time, but they all believe. So my mom goes, and I'm quoting, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you, my son, are going to be a goat herder with a degree. Oh, wow. So I went to Carolina. I got a couple of college degrees. I moved to San Diego with my high school sweetheart, uh, now my first wife, or then my first wife. And there happened to be, Wiley, a comedy store, a branch of the famous one up on Sunset in L.A., in La Jolla, California. It's still there to this day. But my oh, first I know wife. What you're talking about. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, I know exactly which store you're talking about. Yeah, it's on Pearl Street in La Jolla. But my first wife was four square against me being a comedian. I went to work for the company her father's insurance company. He didn't own the company, but he worked there, helped me get the gig. And because that's what she saw for us, for me. And I was not going to open my night, which is where I thought I belonged. So people always ask about my first suicidal thought. It was January, 1984. Yeah. It's about five in the afternoon. It's a rainy day. I'm driving south on 163 in San Diego and depressed and suicidal. Or actually, I was depressed. And then the thought flashed across my mind, why don't you just kill yourself? Well, let's stop there because what from that point when you were growing up where you already knew you were built to do what you do now, but you went through so many different variables of resistance for people around you that loved you, that are within your life, that basically told you you can't do that. What stimulated that moment of suicide? Something drove that feeling to come about. And I'm curious. It runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. Okay. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I I don't know if I've told you this story, but, and by the way, trigger trigger warning for anybody listening. I'm going to cover some, some disturbing topics. Um, Good. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I want people to hear and face these experiences because there's so much value in them for optimizing their own lives and experiences themselves. So they don't feel like they have to go down the wrong direction. So please. Yeah. Well, my mother had found my, my mother got worried about my grandmother because she knew she was winding down mentally, drove over to my grandmother's house, my grandmother taking care of everything. She'd written the checks for the bills, dressed the envelope, stamped them, put them on the kitchen counter. She had closed the windows and doors, blew out the pilot light on the old gas stove, pinned her will to her house coat. So my mother could find it easily. And then sat down at the kitchen table and wrote a suicide note, which, by the way, when I do my presentations, I put the suicide note up on the screen. Right. And as a surprise to the audience, I don't expect them to read it and I'm not going to read it. I have a friend in L.A. who's a voiceover actress. 
who lives with depression. And she said, I'd be honored to voice your grandmother's note. So picture this, Wally. It's dark in the theater. Yep. yep. And all of a sudden, this woman's voice comes out of the speakers like from the grave. My dear children, I'm so sorry to leave you. I mean, you can hear the goosebumps pop. That was 1951. In 1960, I'm four years old, my, my mother can't reach my great aunt. And so she gets worried. So we go over to my great aunt's apartment, let ourselves in, nothing out of place until we get to the kitchen. And in the kitchen, everything that should have been in the, the refrigerator, the milk, the butter, the eggs, the cheese is on the counter. And it, it, back then in 1960, refrigerators didn't have a magnetic strip to hold them closed. They had a latch. Remember those? So if you, yeah, if you crawled in and pulled the door to behind you, there's no getting out. And that's what my great aunt had done, unbeknownst to my mother. So my mother, not realizing what had happened. Oh, and by the way, at some point, my great aunt had, had changed her mind and decided to claw her way out or tried to. Mm-hmm. So my mother reaches over me holding onto her skirt tail and opens the refrigerator door. And my great aunt falls out and pins me to the floor. Oof. And we are face to face and her face is frozen at last moment of horror. Man. Now, here's the thing. If you're already hardwired for depression and suicide, as I am, thanks to my family, and you're that close to an actual suicide, Wally, and I don't think you could get much closer, right? the chances of you seriously considering suicide later in life go way up. So there was not a lot of impact once I stopped screaming at four. Um, I think I walled it off in my brain because I had no conscious memory of it for the longest time until one of my cousins helpfully reminded me. Um, yeah, see the family back then, while people of my mother's generation, they didn't talk about that kind of stuff. No, it was bottled up. Yeah. It's always sucked up. You know, you don't deal with it. And they made up a myth that if I ever asked about it to anybody in the family, I was to be told that when my mother opened the door, there was my great aunt seated comfortably in the refrigerator, hands folded in prayer, looking serene. Well, in 2012, I told that story to my first cousin, Parker who's 10 years older, who was well aware of exactly what happened. And he goes, what? Serene my ass. The old bat fell off, (laughs) fell out and pinned you to the floor. And it all came rushing back. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's 2012. Yeah. So anyway, let's back up to 84. And I had a good childhood. My dad died very young, age of 40, um, of a bad heart valve. uh, Bicuspid, meaning two cuspids instead of three, which turns out I inherited. I've had it fixed twice. Yep. Uh, once in 95, once in 2012, <clears throat> fortunately. And um, so he died and it just my mom raised my sister and myself. I, I had, don't remember really a lot of tragedy in my child. Even though I lost my father, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a worse thing, Wiley, than having one really good parent. Um, my, my wife had two horrible ones. And so I, I, I realized, okay, I'll just take one. Really well, good. Let's take a second, Frank. If you, if I want to just stop quickly in that moment, because what keeps coming up for me and I want everybody that's hanging out, listening is really grasp what you're talking about is you consistently battled and faced not only genetics, inherited stress that your generation after generation, and these experiences continue to show up in these moments of your childhood, growing up, developing, becoming the man you are. And what I pulled out of it right now specifically was your choice to recognize the experiences as they are and not let them actually deter you still from your desire to go do comedy and become something that you feel you were meant to become. So I, I want that to land for a moment 
which is why I interrupted you. But please continue, because if you're paying attention to this right now, listening to Frank talk, he's really sharing how adversity actually does in, in, impact you positively if you're willing to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. Am I correct? I mean, one good parent. I mean, my dad had passed away very suddenly. I was heartbroken, obviously. Uh, but my mom and, and all her friends rallied around. And, and so we, my sister and I had a good childhood. People asked me, did you hate high school? I loved high school. I almost stayed an extra year. I liked it so much. I was going to take more <laughs> Spanish and typing. Honestly, oh, you could man. do that. Back, back then, you could do that. Um, oh. Yeah, you could actually do that. But my first wife said, we, I'd be behind somehow if, you know, of course, you, you've you been to college, Wiley. You know, there are people yeah. there like seven-year plan. Yeah. There is no behind. But anyway, so we moved to San Diego and my wife didn't want me to do stand up and I wasn't going to open mic night. And I've been a little depressed in college, didn't think of it as depression because I didn't know that's probably what it was. But she was going to University of Arizona. I was going to UNC. So I thought I was just heart sick. But the whole suicide thing didn't come up until that day in January of 84. Why don't you just go ahead and kill yourself? And so not only did I take this, this suicidality and, and, and try to find the silver lining, my fourth TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Absolutely. Because I realized at that moment, my first great thought speech, was- Great by the way. Just great speech, by the way. Great okay. speech, by the way. People need to listen to that for sure. Yeah, Suicide, the Secret of My Success. The first thought was, why don't you kill yourself? Second thought was, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy, which is where I do truly believe I belong. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can always kill myself. That's how I got into comedy. I had nothing. There are a few things in life, Wiley, that are more powerful than someone with nothing to lose. My TEDx talk starts like this. What? 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 What goal would you attempt if you knew for a fact you had nothing to lose? What audacious thing would you do if you knew by staying put and not doing it, you would literally die? That's where I was in January of 1984. And I'm, I'm adding to that right now. Again, wise words. Perfect. Perfect set point right now to stop because we need to take heed to who you are. You are obviously a beacon in life to show people you don't need to be faced with suicide to still have that type of attitude, still have that type of drive, still be willing to embrace life as if you do have nothing to lose and everything to gain. But most people are too comfortable and they don't have that type of stress surrounding them or environment or challenge. Mm -hmm. So they, they acquiesce to the ease and the comforts until it is almost too late. And you're obviously like the canary in the coal mine who came in to say, Hey, I went through this so that you don't have to, but yeah. go ahead. Yes. And I say, you know, most people in that situation, if they were neuronormal or neurotypical, they would be stopped because of the old devil, you know, versus the devil you don't. You know, a normal person at that moment would think, what if it doesn't work? I'll lose everything. Well, I had nothing to lose. So it became, as I said in my TEDx talk, between the devil I know and the devil I may just meet. There you go. Um, so I, I told the audience, it's like standing on a, on a cliff, maybe 10 stories up, and there's a beautiful deep lake below you. And there's a wildfire coming up behind you fast. I mean, you can stand there and get burned alive. 
or you can take your chances, jump, and if you hit just right, swim away. I mean, you may die, but you're going to die anyway. Right. Can I can I give you another aside on the please pull all those wise words out, Frank? Please, I I love it. This is good. So two years ago, this uh, past two years ago, past September, we had wildfires. And if you live in a wildfire area, there's a three three stage alert. One is like level one is get ready. Level two is get set. You know, or it's pack the bags, whatever. Level three is get out and get out now because wildfires move like that. They're fast. <clears throat> so I'm downtown. It's level one. I figure I'm, I'm a doctor's appointment, my cardiologist. Uh, and I figure, well, I've got time to get home if anything happens and go ahead and we've already packed. Um, the dogs have already been put um, in uh, at a boarding place, but it went to level three, and and I'm 25 minutes from the house, so level three is evacuate, get out. Right. Yep. Well, yep. in addition to three German Shepherd rescues, we have nine rescue cats in that house, and it's level three, and and so I got in the car and I drove back out to the neighborhood. Now when I get here. Everybody's gone. They're completely evacuated. The, the fire is a mile and a quarter away. I can see it coming over the ridge. Jeez. But there's no fucking way I'm going to let those cats die in that house if I can possibly. We're like the we're like the military. We leave nobody behind. Nobody behind. Yep. 100%. So um, a friend of mine goes, well, you could have been killed. I said, dude, I've been trying to do that to myself for five decades. <laughs> so, you know, I got nothing oh, to lose. Oh, then he said, you could have burned alive. And I go, no, I've got a nickel-plated Ruger 38 loaded with federal hydroshock hollow points. Let me tell you something. If the fire is licking my toes, that's not the way I'm going. I'm riding that 38 Express out of town. I'm not going to burn alive. On your terms. On, On your my terms. terms. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going, yeah. So, again, nothing, absolutely nothing to lose. Right. As I made a little video leaving the neighborhood because I wasn't sure I was going to get out. We were going to get out. And I'm saying goodbye to everybody. You know, uh, tell my wife how much I love her and my sister and telling my brother-in-law he's an asshole. And uh, <laughs> which I've wanted to do for a long time. Yes. And, <laughs> and I'm crying. You hear the cats. Forever. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, cats are meowing. I'm crying. And I, I really didn't know if we are going to make it out alive. But as luck would have it, we all made it out safely. And, and the fire actually never got to the house. It came within a mile and a quarter. But, uh, but again... Yeah, I think that that's a a key point to even talk about right now is, again, you don't need to be facing these types of fires in your life to do what Frank has done, where it's like, how committed and motivated are you to actually go all out without being faced with nothing to lose? You should be focused on, hey, what can I possibly create and gain, regardless if I have everything to lose or nothing to lose? It's like this element of desire is not driving people enough. It's, it's unfortunate that you are sitting here sharing with everybody now and me, and I love hearing it because I've heard these stories. I've listened to your talks. It's fascinating because you have in the work that I do is all about putting these people in these environments that are like fires around them. I put them in those intense moments every single day to really erupt and really make them face that, that, that predicament of, Man, you've got you've got no other direction to go but this way. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm 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 in your life. But you're sharing with people. I did this. I experienced this. What you can take away from our conversation today is you shouldn't have to be put in these predicaments before you start acting on that element of 
What do I want to create in my life? How do I want to live my life? What do I want to see happen for my life? Am I willing to do whatever it takes despite my odds, despite what I might be facing? And I love that you are breaking this down for us because it's 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 key. But you don't have to be faced with suicide, fires, et cetera, to fucking do something about it. You know what I mean? Good no. Lord. It's like, step and up now. Yeah. I, in an odd way, Wally, I feel very fortunate that that life put me in that corner. You know, that, I mean, I, I really didn't have a choice. I was going to die anyway. So if you're going to die, you know, yeah. why not roll the dice? Why? why, the why dice? Uh, and I, I was thinking the other day, looking back, I'm now 65. And look good, man. Yeah, thank you. Somebody goes, you're going to kill yourself? And I go, well, look, I'm 65. Why rush it? <laughs> if I was 35, I might, you know, Different story. Five, not going to be that long anyway. Right, um, right. The uh, There's the humor and there's the dark humor in suicide. Uh, but it, the I, fact I, that you I, laugh at it. That's the thing is you can laugh at that instead of, of it becoming this very somber, depressive moment for you. You take yeah. it, you pull out the good because we get caught up, Frank, and here's more wise words for people is we get caught up in this idea that when something is bad or negative, it immediately means we have no other way, where place to go. We don't see the good in anything that is deemed negative in our society. People are in business, people in, in grow personal development. When it doesn't feel good, when it doesn't look right, when it doesn't sound right, when it feels awful, something's wrong. They don't consider what is the good that's in this moment. I might be facing a death in my family, but maybe there's a reason why I'm going through this right now and not my mother or my father or my brothers. How come I'm the one that my aunt fell on in this moment? How come I'm the one that has to experience this chaos in this moment? Let me let me laugh at it to ease that tension within me so I can find the good from it that I can use to better things in my life and outside of me. And that's what I respect about you and why I'm glad you're sharing this story. Well, and so um, in the last recession, um, our business dropped, my business, speaking business dropped off 80% practically overnight. And we, I, you know, we had $2,300 house payment. Um, and even though we bought, we bought a farm for $600,000, I put half down thinking I'm bulletproof. And we had some rental property with some negative cash flow. And then once the business dropped off, uh, I burned through all the credit cards and credit lines thinking this is going to, you know, turn around. And yeah, yeah. finally I took the last $2,500 on a bank of America credit card Asked the attorneys I knew who's the best bankruptcy attorney in the county. They both named the same woman. So we pulled the plug um, and filed bankruptcy. Chapter seven, which means you just toss everything in the bucket and walk away. And it was destroying my wife. And that's when I learned, that's as close as I've ever come to suicide. That's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And, and somebody said to me, what did it taste like? And I said, relief. Relief. Because a lot of people don't understand that suicide is not so much about wanting to kill yourself as it is wanting to end the pain. Right. And they also don't understand that oftentimes a suicide is a selfless act. Look selfish from the outside looking in, but from the inside looking out, it's called burdensomeness. You feel the world would be better off without you. And I knew Wiley, because I had a million dollar life insurance policy, that my wife would be brokenhearted, but she would no longer be broke. She'd be restored financially. So I was going to kill myself to fix her financially. However, having sold insurance, I knew that I had a two-year suicide clause. So I called my agent and asked him how long I'd had the policy. And he didn't realize in the beginning why I was asking. He goes, uh, 22 months. And then it hit him. I wasn't just asking how long I'd had the policy. 
I was asking for permission to pull the trigger. So the next thing out of his mouth was, and don't do it. Because he'd had this conversation and delivered checks. And he said later, Frank, when I realized what you were asking, I said a quick prayer and hoped that whatever came out of my mouth next made a difference. And I said, Graham, in that situation, it didn't matter so much what you said. It was that you said something at all. You stepped out of your comfort zone, took a chance, and followed your heart, and here I am. So, Wally, I, I, had 60, I had to wait 60 days to kill myself. But I have a, an illness, a mental illness, called chronic suicidal ideation, which means the option of suicide is always on the menu for me and my tribe as a solution for problems large and small. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts, unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That's just, you know, I've already made the decision. I, I can kill it, myself. Man. The option's on the table for you. Yeah, but you're Always. utilizing. Yeah. Uh, the upside of telling that story out loud, and I do each time my keynote, and I did when I was at Fort Irwin two weeks ago. Yeah, talking to the troops. And also last week when I was at uh, uh, the Joint Base Fort Sam Houston and Fort Randolph, Fort... Uh, Sam Houston and Lackland. Um, and each place I went, there was one or two people in the audience, soldiers, sailors, airmen, who have chronic suicidal ideation and they did not know it had a name. They thought they were just some kind of freak and completely yep. alone. Yep. But they come up afterwards and the relief to find out that there are other people who have this. That's the power of being vulnerable on stage and sharing those stories. Right, right. And you, you and I talk about that quite frequently since we've known each other. It's that's the whole point of even why we're doing some work together as well. Is like you you keep sharing Wiley. It's about giving that intimate, vulnerable moment for people to pull them in to realize there's a relatability here. And one of the things I learned being a soldier, three tours overseas myself, being around people that I know who have killed themselves because of they can't get rid of the pain from what they've done overseas is I've had moments where I thought, what would the world be like if I wasn't here? And I think it's not abnormal for a human being, especially considering stressful environments and moments or life experiences, to have thoughts of saying, what would it be like if I didn't exist or if I wasn't here? How would it actually turn out? That's not abnormal. But with your suicide ideation, it's like when there are people out there that don't have someone to relate to, they only go down that rabbit hole towards that negative, you know, ending, if you will. It's not even negative. It's just an ending in a way that maybe they didn't want to. Maybe they weren't ready for. Maybe it's just they needed Frank to stand on stage and say, look, guys, look, it's not abnormal for you to have this. If this is who you are, let's have a conversation. Let's laugh at it and let's use it as just a piece of the menu for success in our lives because you can build from this. You can utilize this as a fuel for doing good out in the world because we all have an inherent desire to do good for others, inherent desire to be better for ourselves. So I, I'm just calibrating to that right now and sharing that again for people that are listening. Like it's not too late, no matter what it looks like. You can, in fact, experience these moments and do something good with it and create a positive outcome if you're willing to embrace it. And if you're at at your wit's end, then find someone like Frank, connect to, listen to, hear stories, and then open yourself up to that vulnerability as well. Yeah, I got a call yesterday from a woman who found me on 
YouTube, found my first TED Talk, and where I talk about chronic suicidal ideation. She's been doing some research on it, and it's not in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical no. Manual. I've had clinicians stare at me like Kim Kardashian at the New York Times crossword puzzle <laughs> when I mention it. They don't know what it is. Yeah. She goes, Frank, I've done all kinds of research. You're the first person I've ever heard say that out loud. There, There's the benefit of going up on YouTube. Well, uh, and while it, when I studied uh, psychology, they would say they would never talked about suicide in that degree that you talk about. Hmm. It. It, was, it was unbelievable where I started talking to other people that I heard that for the first time when I got out of the military. And I thought, what does that mean? I never really went after to learn it. But since meeting you, I've really understood it even more to a, a, a certain degree that really helps. Well, and when I was on base at Fort Irwin uh, in California, if you don't know, it's about this is about 30 minutes off the freeway 10. Desert. Yeah. Yeah, in the Mojave Desert, the the uh, the road just dead ends into, and and they they call it the world's longest cul-de-sac. Yeah, because it just and uh, the psychologist and I were doing a podcast the night before I spoke, and he goes, "Yeah, we're kind of remote," uh, and I go, "Kinda." The only place people come less than here is page two Google. I mean, this is. This is uh, it's remote. I've trained out there. It's remote. I know exactly yeah, what you're talking about. Yeah, national training center. Yeah, and so. They did a survey of the troops on base, on post, they call it, anonymous, and 32%, 32% had had thoughts of suicide in the last two years. That's why they brought me out there. Yeah, they needed you. And and here's the thing, Wally, I'm on stage, and one of the soldiers during the Q&A says, do you think the military is doing enough in this area? And I said, well, I can't speak for the entire military. I said, but I can speak for Fort Irwin. Uh, they are trying very hard. That's why I'm standing here. And I said, let me break it down for you. And I didn't know the one-star general who runs the joint was standing off to my left behind me out of my peripheral vision. I said, let me just break it down for you. I'm here because Fort Irwin gives a shit. And I turn, and nowadays in the military, they, they wear their insignia, you know, the Rank right, yeah, right here. Right the chest here. Yeah, we used to wear it on yeah. our collars, but yeah, right here. Right here. I turn and my eyes go right to the one star. And I said, you're the general. And he goes, I'm a one star. I'm just practicing to be a general. And, <laughs> and the troops laugh. And he turns to them and he says, Frank's right. Yeah. We give a shit. That's what matters. And use it three more times. And I apologize backstage. He goes, Frank, you didn't see I ran with that? Yeah. So um, that's, again, the beauty of starting the conversation. If 32% of the people on that base have considered suicide in the last two years, you need to do something. Well, that's why I brought you. I'm glad we're doing this today. I wanted to take your experience from childhood and what led you to be doing this type of work for people. There's a part of you, and again, we're getting close to kind of wrap, wrapping up here. Time is it goes by so fast, and we have a great conversation. And I really hope we can do this again. Maybe we'll do another another part to this to dive even deeper together. But there's a reason why inside you that kept you afloat despite the gun in the mouth, despite the mo the thoughts constantly showing up, despite your experiences that kept you moving in the direction of choosing the other menu item to turn around and be out here in the world doing this for other people. There's these high performance reasons why you became a bodybuilder. I mean, that's unbelievable shift in mindset right there. Just to do that, to pose on stage, takes so much courage, but, and then also be this comedian, do what you do for like the tonight show, Jay Leno, et cetera, and just embrace 
who you are, despite those little elements that might be short-circuiting, if you will, I want people listening to really understand whatever wise words you have for them from all of that till now and how that can support where their mindset is when it comes to facing adversity in their lives. Well, my third TEDx talk was called Mental with Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. So I, I actually take a proactive, I said to the audience, look, okay. I do not believe I am broken. I believe I was made this way. I think my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my creativity, imagination, and comedic mm-hmm. ability. It's the same brain, same wiring. I can teach you to write stand-up and perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the way I do. I said, you know, there's a reason if somebody heckles me, I can leave a smoking hole where they were seated like I had a tow missile. And and people go, how'd you think that up? I didn't think it. When you heard it, I, I was as surprised as you were. <laughs> it just came screaming out the back of my head. I have no idea. So the whole idea of the talk was that everybody, almost everyone I met who was mentally ill and high functioning had some other amazing ability. So I said to the audience, look, and I did this for kids, basically. What if, what if a mental illness is not a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if we could convince a child, yes, you have a mental illness, but get this. This is probably, you haven't been told this yet. You probably have some mental ableness your peers can't touch. And then I turn to the parents and go, look, treat the mental illness, but wrap your arms around, embrace and energize whatever it is that they are super good at, and then drive them in a career path. If he has OCD, for God's sakes, uh, accounting, uh, architecture, engineering, where he or she will be paid handsomely for an attention to detail. The IEP should truly be the individual education plan, should truly be individual. In other words, use those abilities don't yes. focus on the disabilities. Let's land that right now for everyone listening. Take a sip of your whiskey and, and really embrace, <laughs> cheers, brother, and embrace what he just said because we're getting ready to wrap up here. But we are so asymmetrically focused on disease and illness. We do not embrace ability and ableness. Huge wise words to take home right now is stop beating yourself up. If you like, I get it. I grew up with an ADD brain and everybody I shared with someone earlier before you and I got into this conversation that I learned how to manage and balance that because I recognized the creativity in my mind's ability to think a thousand thoughts at one time. I started to embrace my way in which I organized myself so I can use it for my benefit, which is why I run a successful business, why, why I'm able to do what I do for powerful people, and I'm able to live a good life without letting this overtake, you know, you know, being perfect in my life and messiness, et cetera. I've learned to embrace the ableness of ADD, and I love that you share that with parents. You share that with people. Is Take that with you, everyone. If this is the conclusion of our conversation, Frank, I want everybody to take those wise words. Learn to embrace the other side of what we deem an illness or a disability because it actually isn't. There's so much value in that. Well, let me give you a uh, an action item as they do on TEDx. They're always, always big on action items on TEDx. Right. What, can, what can the Please audience do. take? With? Please and do. I, I, can't, I didn't create this. I was taking a class of somewhere somehow for a friend who needed another student. And something the instructor said, it was all about the brain and thinking. Exercise was, divide your life into decades. One to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, how many ever years you've been around. And look in that decade and see if, if whatever, what, what was the worst thing that happened 
right, in that right, decade. Right. Right. And see if you can't find the silver lining. So my dad died when I was eight on my birthday, and it was Thanksgiving of heart disease. Well, the blessing was when I got older, I was watching out for heart disease. And as soon as I was able to get an echocardiogram, what had been a murmur to my doctors previously, yes. I realized was a bad heart valve that I was going to have to have fixed. So by his death by heart disease... I was on top of that. So I had it fixed. And then in my 20s, I married my first wife. Well, that was, she was a wonderful woman, but we had nothing in common. But, you know, opposite attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't. So, um, but I've said many times, I would go through the whole marriage, four years, 11 months, 19 days, uh, again, because when I met my second wife, whom I've been married to for 35 years, it was 10 seconds either way. And we would not have bumped into each other. So if I had to go through that marriage again to get to that store at that moment to meet her, I would do it again. That was the blessing in that horrible first marriage was my second marriage of 35. So I think if people will look back to the decade, figure out what the worst thing had happened to you and see if there wasn't a blessing or silver lining in there somewhere. Right. And revert back to that, hold on to that, and then pay attention to the next 10 years, the next five years, the next 20 years as life starts to present more of those silver linings for you in those stressful moments as well, right? That's the key takeaway for this conversation. I really appreciate diving into this, man. I, I love, I know you talk about it happily and without issue, and I look forward to doing it again with you. Um, please share with people as well. I want to make sure that I, they, they link up with you. They follow you. They listen to your speeches because you great, you speak so well on all these topics. Where can they actually connect with you the most and find uh, where your speeches are? Well, while he didn't tell you was, I'm in witness protection. Uh, <laughs> I know the, I know your agents. <laughs> no, you can go to right, the right. mental health comedian or the, as we say down South mental health yeah, comedian. Yeah. Right. And if you go there, uh, two co-authors and I wrote four books on men's mental health. You can download the first one for free. It's an audiobook. I narrate it. Um, but the great. mental health, if you just type in the mental health comedian, um, I good. might, my SEO is good enough. You'll find all kinds of things you will. that I've done. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah, Frank. And you know what? I'm I'm working with Frank too. TED Talk, he's he's a master of what he does with that. So if you're interested in getting your message out there, absolutely have a conversation with him. He's an amazing guy. Frank, I appreciate you being here, brother. Really. I want to give one more toast to everybody that's been listening and paying attention. Cheers to you, brother. And I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you. Hey man, uh, and let's do let's do the t let's do the drinking thing in less than a decade. What do you say? Sounds fantastic to me. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate you being here, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Wally. For those listening today, thanks for hanging out with us. If you're digging what you're hearing, don't forget to give that subscribe button a tap and make sure you rate and review the show. Catch you all on the next conversation. Cheers. <laughs> 